Welcome to True Humanitarian. I'm your host, Lars Peter Nissen. This week we discuss humanitarian financing. Today, most funding for humanitarian action comes from donors who respond to appeals. Welcome to True Humanitarian. I'm your host, Lars Peter Nissen. This week we discuss humanitarian financing. Today, most funding for humanitarian action comes from donors who respond to appeals or project proposals from agencies. And it's no secret that the complex interaction between agencies and donors influence and shape response in ways that has little or nothing to do with the situation of crisis-affected populations. Daniel Clark is the director of the Center for Disaster Protection, and he thinks we can do better. He has a background as an actuary and knows a lot about how to design financial instruments for handling risk. Together with Stefan Durkin, he has written about these ideas in a thought-provoking book called Dull Disasters, How Planning Ahead Will Make a Difference. The ideas outlined in the book are thought-provoking, and they would, if put into practice, transform the way in which we work. So enjoy the conversation, read the book, and let's all work together to make disasters dull. Daniel Clark, uh, welcome to Trumanitarian. Thank you. Uh, thank you for having me. You are a somewhat unusual guest to Trumanitarian. You you studied math, and then you worked with pensions in the UK. And how the heck did you end up on a humanitarian podcast? That's a great question. Um, well, so when I yeah when I when I finished university, I started work in an area where risks are managed pretty well um and it's a pretty boring area so pensions in the uk is not it's not an area that children when they're speaking to their parents when they're young they say when i grow up i want to be a pensions actuary daddy or mummy um you know it, it's it's a bit dull um but there are lots of processes around which try to manage both the politics as well as the practicalities of the risk that people outlive their 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 wealth their resources you know they they live too long and run out of money and so you have to think about you know you've got systems in place um to deal with that including a large part of that is planning financially and planning for the fact that you might outlive your assets so i i had that training um in this world this whole whole world of um risks that i managed well but really you know that i i'd always seen that as being a um a training um using my sort of maths background to Um, to then go into public service of some variety. And just explain to us, what is an actuary? <laughs> um, that's a great question. So the, 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 old, the old joke is that accountants add and subtract and actuaries also multiply and divide. Or, um, or the other one is uh, actuaries are people who find accountancy too interesting. But I think they're the people who, they do a number of things. They basically deal with finance when there's risk involved. Um, and they're the people who... Um, If you have a pension scheme in many many jurisdictions, there are the people who write the reports that say whether the pension scheme actually has enough money to um, deliver what they say they're going to deliver to you. Or if you buy an insurance policy, there you know, the appointed actuary role, the, the responsibility to make sure the insurance company is going to not run out of money. Um, but they're also you know involved in other aspects of risk management. But you you get trained on a range of you know it's applied probability, a lot of probability, a lot of finance. Lots of economics, um, and then, um, and then sort of put it all together into that professionalism as well. So the integrity and you know. And that that of course brings us to the reason why we are here today. You are the director of the Center for Disaster Protection, a organization newly created, I believe, a couple of years ago, which 
it focuses on how to find new and innovative financial models or financing models for the humanitarian sector. Can you tell us what, what what's the idea behind the, the Center for Disaster Protection? Yeah, definitely. Well, I mean, our, our mission is really around trying to shift the world and, and specifically countries and international organizations away from treating disasters like surprises and and then to help them to plan better so that you know disasters aren't like surprises and i get to work with um a team of inspiring people as well as broader lots of partners and collaborators um to help to build the evidence based on what really works and what doesn't work um we offer independent advice to international organizations and countries um, and we advocate for a much better international system that serves people better and protects people who might be caught up in tomorrow's crises. So so what you're saying is plan better, be smarter, but we know things are coming, we have statistics, we have forecasts, we can actually quantify this risk. And 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 then what should we do differently once we have figured out that uh, there will be an earthquake in the future? That's a good question. So yeah, so we should be we should be planning properly and um those plans should be more than just pieces of paper. So one of the challenges, you know, there are lots of plans out there for when, um, for situations that might overwhelm communities, for disasters, for for, for crises, um, but often those plans aren't consulted. And the reason being that um, the financial model that too often is the way that we pay for crises um, is based on waiting until a crisis hits, waiting until a disaster um, disaster event occurs and then working out who's going to pay for it. So um, those those plans that may have been developed in advance are really um, maybe stated intentions, but a plan without budget backing it is is more of an aspiration. So it's really around trying to get proper planning um, um, in place um, so that um, you, know, you get fast action, um, so that you get the right incentives to not just respond but also prevent and repair for um you know what might what the future might bring to um provide more dignity so you know there's there's you know it's quite undignified to have to wait until a disaster and then hold out a begging bowl um having um having um some understanding in advance and proper plans in advance of what will actually happen can be much more dignified and can involve local populations better it sounds great But you know, people would love to get money for this. But but I mean, politically, are you really going to set millions and millions aside waiting for that earthquake that might happen in 20 years? I mean, there's a reason why it functions like this, and it is we don't know exactly when it happens. So so what's what's the innovation here? So so the point you made about setting money aside. So it's not always around holding a big pot of money there uh, for a rainy day or a dry day or an earthquake or what have you. Um, If you if you work backwards from you know, what would happen if an earthquake was to strike, what would happen if civil wars to break out, what would happen if a pandemic was to hit, you know, how would the money actually flow? And realistically try to assess, you know, what would, in particular, you know, what would countries and what would the international system pay for? What would they pay for and how would they pay for it? And then think through, well, how could that be done better? And it um and that's the sort of start of real, real planning. So how could you how could you make that better? So it's not So in in them, so it's not about finance being the solution. It's about proper planning being the solution. But then, you know, finance being the glue that holds those plans together and um, allows you to plan, gives you, empowers you to plan properly, as opposed to just writing pieces of paper that then aren't consulted. 
So, so Daniel, I get that, right? I and I've been in several earthquakes or, or sudden onset disasters where I would have loved to have a backup money, but instead of trying to figure out how to respond to this crisis, I was writing proposals to the donors, spending most of my energy just simply fundraising. What can you do for me in that situation? What what what's different? I mean, I know I would I need the budget. I would love to have the money, but they they don't seem to be there. So so what's on the table? What what do you offer? Yes. So maybe I'll 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 just give a couple of examples because I think it's easy it's easy for all this stuff to be quite abstract. Um, a couple of examples of um, things that have been implemented that I think were point to a better future. So one one is uh, last year in June when rains were about to hit Bangladesh, there was going to be flooding, and the UN specifically WFP, FAO, and UN Women had planned in advance to be able to act early in anticipation of a flood, so two days before the flood water actually hits, but on the basis of a forecast, to respond to help affected populations. The reason why they were able to do that was because they had worked in advance to come up with proper plans. They'd worked in advance to agree um, what were the decision points, so what were the triggers that were going to lead to action. If this happens, if the forecast is sufficiently bad, okay, we will act, as opposed to sort of waiting for more information. So that trade-off around no regrets action. And then also they had the finance arranged in advance. They had pre-agreed finance that was ready to go so they knew they would be able to actually pay for this anticipatory action. And there, there was, you know, we, we worked with WFP to evaluate that cash transfer component. And lo and behold, that faster response, that faster cash transfer to households before the flood waters led to fewer children skipping meals um, and other, other better outcomes. Bangladesh repeated disasters, right? So we, we know a lot about how it unfolds. And, and so they sit down and they say, if this much rain comes or if, if this happens, then no matter what, we're going to do A, B, and C. Right? So that's the first part of the plan, that they, they have some specific events that happen. And if that happens, we just go. Yes. And they can do that because they got some money. Now, where did they get the money from? <laughs> well, in this case, the money came from the surf. Um, and so it was it was pre-agreed through the surf, so the surf agreed. If this thing happens, then we, you know, we will provide the money. So they knew the money was able to come, and they were able to. But it was the money was contingent on them doing proper planning. So if they planned in advance and demonstrated the proper paperwork in advance of the flood hitting, then they knew that if the if the um, if the if the rains looked like there was going to be flood water, then they they would be able to get the money in. Great. So in this case, we have a global fund that sort of uh, incentivizes proper planning with. Uh, no regrets, action, we do this no matter what, if this rain falls or if it doesn't fall or whatever that we're talking about. And then that frees up agencies to move really quickly. Yeah, exactly. So it empowers, in this case, UN agencies um, to, to plan properly because they know that their plans aren't just pieces of paper, that you know, this is actually, they will have the money and they will be expected to be able to deliver on those plans if, if that contingency arises. And so all it took here, it seems, was for the surf to change the way it dishes out money? Well, it's interesting. Um, yeah, I think that was, that was a really important catalyst for this. In, in practice, if you speak to you know, organizations like, um, like, 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 um, like WFP, who've been involved in this, but also the Red Cross Red Crescent movement and Start Network, who've been sort of doing this for quite a long time, that is the trigger that allows them to properly plan. But actually, a lot of the work and a lot of the challenge is in that other aspects of planning, that operational planning. So what would you actually do? When would you actually do it? Um, who would, how would you target households? What would be the interventions? 
Um, that sort of proper planning is something which um, takes a lot of time and effort and, and also shifting to make sure you can actually can actually respond so, so quickly because it's no, no point at all saying, okay, everything's triggered two days before the flood, let's respond. And then it takes seven days before the cash actually gets to households. Those households need that cash now or in the FAO intervention, they need those barrels to be able to put their tools in to protect them from water. Um, that, that needs to actually happen before the flood. So you need to have everything in place, all the logistics um, in place as well. So the challenging bit is not the finance. The finance is you know, challenging um, to shift that might, to, you know, to actually get someone to agree to that, I guess, um, to shift that way of funding, because it's always much more natural to wait until a disaster and then ask for money. You know, you can see it. Fundraising for tomorrow's disasters is, is harder than fundraising for today's disasters. But if you can get it, the difficult bit is the proper planning. The finance is often the easy bit. It's interesting because my instinct is almost the opposite. Right? We have talked about contingency planning for forever. We have run workshops on it. We've done all these things. But we all know that pitching to a donor about something that hasn't happened yet is borderline impossible. Well, it was borderline impossible, maybe. I think that is starting to shift. Um, I think there is an increased recognition that um, you know, we need to change the way disasters and crises are dealt with. And you know, if we really do want a world where without crises, we need a world where crisis risks are managed well. And part of that is around paying for some things with money as opposed to with lives and destroyed um, livelihoods and environmental degradation. So part of that is about money. And then there's a question about, well, how do we arrange the money to, to get better? So Daniel, it's a great example with, with the surf and uh, with what happened in, in Bangladesh. Right? At the same time, the surf also is, is, is quite a small instrument in the big picture of things. And um, we should have mentioned in the beginning that part of the reason you're here is also that you've written a great book called Dull Disasters. And so I think my, my question to you is, great that we had an impact in Bangladesh by working smarter, making money available quicker, but that's not going to make disasters dull as such. How do you, how do you apply, apply this at a broader scheme? Yeah, no, that's great. So I, I guess I mentioned the Bangladesh example because it's quite a clear, concrete example of of, of proper planning. Um, and this is something that governments are also doing and um, donors are supporting governments doing as well. And governments are doing off their own bat as well. So governments are, for example, um, increasingly starting to experiment with buying things like uh, insurance policies or taking out contingent loans. Um, so the government of Senegal, for example, purchased a parametric drought insurance policy from an organization called African Risk Capacity. Um, and donors also at Germany also bought a matching policy for the Start Network. Um, and then when drought hit a couple of years ago, or last year perhaps, um, there was a payout to the government of Senegal to support early action to uh, drought response, as well as a payout to the Start Network. Um, and the interesting thing there was, you know, um, there, there, the, the government departments knew that that money was coming, they were able to plan properly for it, similarly the Startnet was able to plan and they were able to work with government because the money was going to be coming at the same time to each of them so they could have those conversations about how they're going to plan jointly together. Now not all of the listeners of True Humanitarian are actuaries. <laughs> so maybe we, yeah, sorry to break the news to you, but maybe we should just spend two minutes on parametric insurance. Just explain that concept to us. So parametric insurance is an interesting term. Um, another word for it would be a, a parametric derivative. So essentially, this is a financial contract where 
someone pays some money upfront, like an insurance premium. And then if certain things happen, then they get some money back. A, a bit like an insurance policy. But traditionally, insurance is based on losses. So you get paid based on the to, to rehabilitate the losses you incurred. So indemnity insurance that um, if you incur a medical expense, the insurer will pay for that pay for that cost, that medical treatment, for example. Parametric insurance is different. It's not based on the losses you you occur. It's based on some sort of proxy. So you have to try to come up with some sort of proxy for loss. Because the problem with traditional insurance for disasters, um, if a disaster strikes and causes all sorts of destruction, it's very difficult to go around and work out exactly what the losses were. It can be very time intensive going to every single building, every single household. But is it possible? And it can take time. It can take a couple of years to do that. And then people are left without getting the money. So can you instead choose some proxy like how big was the earthquake? Where was the earthquake? How deep was it? Um, how, how fast did the wind blow? Maybe what, what was the average crop loss in a particular subdistrict sub or geographical area, geographical area? How many refugees moved to a particular place? What is the relative price of meat to grain? These, all these things are sort of proxies that might be an indicator of um, a shock having occurred and caused... Um, potential losses to, to people. And the trick is to try to design design something where the triggers match the needs. Um, and, you know, it's a little bit like targeting generally. If you're developing a social protection system, you might have a number of indicators that you use to target households. Or if you're developing humanitarian response, you will have an approach to work out who is actually going to receive the, the support in terms of geographical location and other characteristics. This is just another proxy indicator for are these people in need? Um, you know, has something happened? You know, is there? It has this proxy triggered, which suggests that actually that you know they were worse than you otherwise thought, and then it's a good indicator for targeting. Yeah. So, for example, uh, if an earthquake above seven point strikes or whatever, then everybody who's in that area gets a hundred dollars. Exactly. That's right. exactly it. And we don't discuss it. You just get a hundred dollars. Here you go. The trigger is so dead simple and clear that there will be no discussion about whether it happened or not then you can get a lot of money out really quickly. Exactly. So you plan in advance, you have this clear decision process that's based on objective information where if this happens, it's like a rocket launch or it's like, some, you know, if this happens, then you move to this step and the money can go directly to households as often, you know, it probably should or it can go to organizations that are providing public services or substituting for, for obviously state provision of those services. But it can be applied all along the chain in terms of providing public services, market services, as well as directly to individuals. So why the heck don't we just do that? <laughs> That's a good question. I think, so firstly, there's status quo bias. Um, it's natural to wait until something happens and then try to fundraise for it. And this is a bad habit um, in terms of efficiency and outcomes. Um, but we've built our entire, you know, we've built a whole bunch of institutions around that. Um, and it's not just on the humanitarian side. On the development side, you also have, you know, pots of money that are just sitting there which can't be allocated until a disaster strikes. I think we also have um, fear of, you know, doing it differently and doing it badly. So it's all very well to say, let's plan better. But what if your plans fail? What if you plan for the wrong thing? Um, you know, you plan for drought and then a flood occurs. Um, and so I think there's this sort of fear of planning badly and then being seen not to have a magical crystal ball. Um, and then finally, I think there's political will. So, you know, we know from research that looks at domestic politics that, you know, politicians um, 
do quite well in terms of vote share for responding decisively after a disaster, they don't tend to get many votes for investing in preparedness, for example. So, um, and the same may well be true for um, ministers in donor countries. Um, but I think that shouldn't stop us from trying to shift towards a, a better system that does plan in advance, that does have proper financial planning. Every time you've said to do planning properly, there's a, there's a little part of me who get a little bit offended, right? Because I'm, I'm, I've been a practitioner for many years and it's like, yeah, what, what is he talking about? We would if we could. We feel so disempowered from an operational perspective and I think probably have quite a deep lack of trust in the people who hold the, the money and their willingness to let go of the power they have. And I think we've all seen allocations being made uh, based on media attention rather than real needs. And I think they want to keep their options open. That I think there's one set of issues around that. And then the other one is probably a fear of not using scarce resources in the most targeted manner that is not those in greatest need who who get the most resources. And I think for humanitarian, that's, that's being needs-based and really making those difficult priorities is something that's really important for us. So if you think about fire risk, so fire risk for buildings in high-income countries is something that has been a lot of work on over the years about how to make sure that people don't die in, you know, in, in fires, household fires and industrial fires. Um, and the way that we solved that problem was not by having... It, the problem was not solved just by working out how we were going to organize the logistics and funding for fire engines to go around the country. So we also have standards in place. You have your you know, sprinkler systems and you know, all this sort of prevention. Um, and then you have your annual fire safety inspection, which says, you know, here are the risks, here are the things that can happen based on research and evidence into what has gone wrong and it's constantly improving. So I think... It comes down to, you know, it comes down to the impartiality principle of humanitarian action, which sort of says we should prioritize, you know, urgent needs. And I think this agenda is about saying, yeah, but <laughs> let's not. We need to think about tomorrow's potential needs as well. Um, so yes, you know, humanitarian action that is one of the basic principles of humanitarian action. But there, there need to be actors out there that have, you know. Some of the other humanitarian principles in terms of, you know, trying to prioritize the, the, the greatest need, but also thinking about tomorrow's need as well. And if we want to prioritize tomorrow's need, we need to have the equivalent of the sprinkler systems. We need to have the fire safety inspections. We want our fire brigade um, to be involved in all of that, you know, in, in sort of, um, you know, if you've got a good fire safety management, the people who are there fighting the fires and those organizations are involved in trying to help the risk assessment, help shift the standards, you know, think about, well, what went wrong? Um, and I think the challenge we have in the international system is we just don't learn. So um, so t take Somalia, for example, 2010, 2011, slow onset, um, sl slow response to drought led to extreme needs and famine. There were lessons learned. Um, and then when, you know, the next large drought hit Somalia, there was faster action. But then we forgot again because nothing had actually changed. The only thing that had changed was that temporarily there had been people who were still involved in um, international action in Somalia who had that institutional memory, who, who, who had that mindset never again. And, and part of the reason why we didn't learn, I think, is because of the, the funding model because the funding model was still based on 
um, waiting until something is bad and you can demonstrate that people are in need and then fundraising as opposed to having things set up in advance. Yeah, I think uh, I think that's a, a great argument. I, I also have in the back of my head sort of a saying, yeah, okay, it's it's all well and good uh, in Scandinavia and uh, in in the, the the really strong countries where you have a strong institutional setup. Uh, but we work with people who where the government often doesn't want to or doesn't have the capacity to really help them. And so I I think the question is, can the new financing model help uh, offset the negative impact of a very loose or very weak institutional framework, right? And, and it's possible because if money is involved, of course, people will pay more attention. Yeah. So I think definitely the international system has the potential to really help countries that are, um, are willing um, and in some sense are able to, to get better at managing these risks. Um, and for international action and international support and international um, funding, to support government's provision of those essential services around, you know, disaster response, crisis response, but also everything to do with prevention preparedness and getting those better institutions to manage those risks. Um, there is also a role uh, for the international system's um, role as um, substituting for state provision of those services, I think, in improving that function. Um, and, you know, the, the possibility for better financial planning to lead to actually better action and... Um, you know, reduced reduced needs. Great. So, so the core idea we've been discussing so far is that actually we could do much better with what we have if we have more have smarter financing. Basically, if that that idea of this simple parameter which would trigger money, so we know they're coming if we have a problem, and then we can respond quickly. You, you gave the example from Bangladesh. We've talked about how the private sector can provide that through insurance and and how how that can really uh, help some of the most vulnerable people. But I think what all of this relies on is, on one side, of course, a, a clear trigger, which I think we can find. But the other side of that equation is, I would think, quite a deep understanding of the actual risk and, and the consequences they would have, right? So it's before you pick that, that simple trigger, you actually need to really, really dig into what is the hazard here and what would be the consequences if this scenario played out. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Totally agree. So, <laughs> here comes the question. What the heck do we do when we have uh, Ebola in West Africa or if we have a pandemic, a global pandemic like we've had? It's not like we didn't know that these risks existed. They've been talked about a lot, avian flu, what, what, what. But I don't think any of us understood the consequences of this. If you look to the, at the disruption to the global supply chain now, I mean we would not have been able to to study this well enough to have a simple trigger for it, would we? Well, I mean, you don't need to know everything to be able to do an awful lot better at managing risks. And COVID is an interesting one because disease X is not, was not new to a lot of people. Um, the idea that this may come, I mean, there have obviously been lots of reports. The World Bank went through this exercise setting up this thing called the Pandemic Emergency Financing Facility where they tried to think about uh, you know, what kind of pandemics could occur and what the likelihood is. And one of the interesting things in the exercise is they, they hired one of these catastrophic modeling firms to try to put numbers on the likelihood of different kinds of pandemics. And what was interesting to me was those numbers are actually really quite high. So over a three-year period, they're estimating actually there's quite a quite a high high chance there would be 
you know, one of these kinds of um, pandemics that would, you know, affect more than two countries. So I think this was a risk that um, the experts knew about, but we didn't plan for. Um, and if you look at what's happened with, for example, international funding for COVID, um, less than 2% of international funding was arranged in advance. Um, you find that um, something like 100 for, for countries where the um, increase in poverty rates, dollar a day consumption poverty as a result of COVID um, was uh, very small. They received $118 per person, $108, sorry, per person on average. Countries which had the biggest increase in poverty, so increase in two percentage points increase in poverty, they only received $41 per person. So it's the wrong way around. The countries that had the biggest impact of COVID in terms of consumption poverty outcomes received only 40% of the money of the countries that were least hit. And the reason why is we have an international system, financial system, um, which is based on banks and bank accounts and loans. And the simple fact is a lot of the countries that are most in need couldn't borrow. So there were loans that were able to, able to be provided to the countries that were happened to be least, least hit in terms of poverty increases. But what happens about those countries who are already in debt suppressed who can't borrow? Well, what we saw in COVID was they weren't able to get more money. Now, that was something that we could have thought through in advance. It's something which, yes, we wouldn't know exactly how, you know, and there were a whole, <laughs> you know, speaking to, um, you know, disease experts, there are all sorts of, um, you know, types of pandemics we should be thinking about and planning for. And you wouldn't necessarily need to know all the knock-on consequences of what's actually happened with COVID to know, well, we, we, should, have, we should have done a much better job of planning, um, particularly for those countries who are already in debt distress and couldn't borrow more. But how would you do that? You, you, you said yourselves that there's a fairly high risk of this and that, uh, I mean, we're talking about staggering numbers here. Isn't this one of the ones that are too expensive to insure? Too expensive to insure is an interesting one. So I think we need to ask the question, firstly, do we want to pay for crises with lives and or do we want to pay with money? If we're paying with money, um, what should we be planning for? And I'd, I'd definitely pitch for saying anything that's predictable or modelable we should be planning for. Then you need to work out um, for that, for, for where we're planning for, how much money do you need to arrange in advance ready to go? Um, and then you get to the question of um, insurance and where where the money is going to come from. And there are a number of options. So when it comes to, you know, when, when countries have big risks that face them, so take, take the UK, for example, um, you know, in the wake of um, terrorist incidents in, um, in London in the 70s, businesses said to the government, if you don't provide me with terrorism insurance, I'm leaving the UK and go, I'm taking my business somewhere else because it's just too unsafe for me. So the government um, worked with the insurance industry to set up an insurance scheme where actually the UK government and the UK taxpayer is on the hook for a lot of that risk. So if there are big incidents or a number of smaller incidents, the UK government takes on that risk. They, they've basically agreed in advance. They're, they're willing to take that risk onto the government's balance, onto the government's balance sheet on behalf of the taxpayer. Um, donors could offer to do that with crisis risks. Um, that would be a, you know, relative, you know, the economists would tell you that's quite a cost-effective way of doing it. 
Um, if you can't do that, you could set up systems whereby if crises happen, you automatically have budget reallocations, either donors automatically reallocate budgets from one thing to another, or international organizations like the World Bank, IDA, would automatically reallocate its money from, from what it was planned to other things. And you'd have that set up in advance. Or you can do things like, you know, buy insurance where, um, you know, there you would be paying something in advance and then um, you know, the money would come from private capital. And has any of this been discussed seriously in the aftermath of COVID? I mean, that figure you mentioned, that, that uh, the ones who needed the most get 40% of the ones who needed less, that, that's, that's really compelling. It is. And, and I think the answer is it, it has been. Um, it will take some time to work through. So, um, so earlier in this year, we were, the Center for Disaster Protection, were proud to be with 45 other organizations and individuals from six UN agencies to locally-led networks, academics, researchers, to call the G to call for the G7, um, um, amongst other things, to shift um, to to arrange fun financing in advance instead of waiting until disaster strikes. So we want by 2030 that if it can be prearranged um, in terms of financing, it should be. So we, by 2030, we shouldn't be in a situation where we have predictable risks that we knew about um, where the money wasn't there in advance. So if you are successful in your mission of advocating for these new and smarter ways of financing crisis, by 2030 we will see a fundamentally different way of doing humanitarian action because the money will actually be available up front. Is that what you're saying? Yes, I mean, but not just humanitarian action. This would also be in terms of working with governments as well. So, I mean, we talk about crisis financing, so, you know, financing for people who might be affected by crises tomorrow as well. Um, and, and, and really what you'd find then is, because this isn't just about aid and the international system, it's about, you know, there needs to be change in every country across the world as well. Um, and what I want to see is that the international system is a beacon that shows not just how you can overcome some of the technical challenges, but some of the political challenges that lead to, you know, waiting until disaster strike and then raising money and that can work through some of those kinks and then help um, encourage motivate support and provide a provide a better way um, that countries can then take up as as some countries already are obviously at the moment but um, too often in at a country level um, you know you wait until a disaster or crisis strikes and then everyone looks to whoever's the head of state to work out, you know, what they're going to pay for and what they're not going to pay for. And, you know, that's really where we should be heading towards, to really the shift in the international system to with, with, with a focus on those most in need as being um, part of an agenda to shift this at a country level as well. And so what, what's your role as the Centre for Disaster Protection? What, what, what's your theory of change? Right? You're trying to unstick some things here which could have a massive impact if we actually manage to get this in place. But obviously there are all sorts of obstacles. What, what's your theory of change? How are you changing the world? So we've got a number of things that we do. Um, so one of the things that we do is we provide advice to governments to donors to international organizations who are who are interested in trying to develop better plans based on pre-agreed finance and we help them to bring evidence to those to those discussions they're having to try to make sure that what they're developing is actually great and will actually deliver so that's one thing we do and why is that not done by the private sector they must have an interest in this is a big market risk will grow in the future there must be 
massive amounts of money to be made on offering new products from the private sector. Why, why do we need a sensor for that? I think the, I think the, the issue is that the solution doesn't lie with any particular kind of expertise. So people from the financial sector might be very good at assessing risk and they might be very good at working out the financial consequences of risk and how to how to design a financial instrument that would address that. But they're not the people who are going to know what what emergency related needs might look like. They're not the going to people who are going to know what response should look like or how much response should cost. Um, and they're not the people who are going to be able to craft political deals that pull together political leaders with most at-risk communities and all the different organizations involved that need to help to, to deliver this. So I think the, that skill set is important to have at the table, but that is not, I mean, the, the solution is going to lie in the right kinds of collaboration um, as opposed to someone coming in, I've got this, some, some sort of um, whizzy solution that's going to solve everything. Um, so you provide the advice. So we provide the advice. We also um, invest in the evidence because actually, this is, <laughs> although I've sort of to date been proselytizing about the benefits of pre-agreed finance, there's actually very little evidence that this increases, that, that this leads to better outcomes for people. Um, there is some evidence and there's, <laughs> it seems logical, um, <laughs> but we should be checking that we're not just full of stories. Um, so to date, there are only about three robust evaluations that um, that find um, um, that find you know that, that actually ask the question: Did this actually have a positive impact on people? And try to answer that question. Have any evaluations been done asking that question that says no, this actually did not work? Oh yes. Yeah. I mean, but but it's not so much. I don't think it's a question of. It didn't have an. Maybe I'm I'm too much of a, a zealot. I don't think I don't think I don't interpret the evaluations that found no positive impact as meaning that this doesn't work. I think it's I think you need I think they help us to understand what kind of planning can work, what kind of planning doesn't work, and also how do we get better. And they help to chart a way towards well, what are the, where are the areas that we need to get better at if we want this to work. So you, what you're saying is that in the situations where it didn't work, you can see why and how to fix that. Yeah, so there's a great example. So um, African Risk Capacity, um, this um, um, organization that sits under the African Union that provides drought insurance and, and other kinds of insurance products to, to governments across Africa, they, they sold an insurance policy to the government of Niger a while back. And they, they're one of the few organizations in this space that's committed to an independent evaluation. So that, that independent evaluation came out and what we learned was that there was a payout from this product in Niger, which we knew, but because of the way that the government of Niger budgets, that their budgets worked, that money basically sat there for six months before it could actually be allocated and spent. So they got quick money, but it didn't actually go out the door. So this point around, you can have the best financial instrument in the world that pings money in, but if you don't have those systems for getting money out to the right people, then what's the point? Now, does that mean pre-agreed finance was a failure or does that mean well we just need to make sure <laughs> that you know it's not just around getting the money in you also have sufficient attention that planning and getting the money out great so you provide this technical advice not just on the financing instrument but for example also on budgeting procedures you develop evidence study how and where does it work uh, what else do you do well um we we also advocate for a better international system. 
Um, and this is around, this is the point that I was talking about earlier about the international system wasn't built. Well, a lot of it was built around this idea that the job of the international system when a disaster strikes is to make sure we can respond quickly, as opposed to the job of the international system is to get things set up in advance so that we have reliable policy so everyone knows what they're going to be able to do and that's all backed by pre-arranged finance and then we also learn as we go along to improve. So so we, we want to we want a better international system that provides better options to countries, um, that allows humanitarian organizations and civil society organizations to do more, um, that shines a light on needs and makes sure makes sure that um, you know no one is left behind. Um, and um, um, and that learns as we go along um, and learns from the experience. And this this isn't just um, some sort of nice story that was written in a book five years ago that sounded nice on paper, but actually is something that is tested and um, is developed in such a way that it really does deliver. How much are these new ideas uh, for Africa with drought or storms in the Caribbean and how much is it also for example Germany after the floods we had uh, with, with surprisingly high casualty numbers for, for for Germany to rethink the way they do or Sweden or you know highly developed countries that with a very strong track record of of risk management and civil protection are they also thinking about this so they need to be um, and I, I think they are and I think Um, it's very difficult for any country, you know, even New Zealand, um, to sort of stand back and say, okay, no, we we're we're great at disastrous management. We have nothing left to learn. I mean, if you, even if you look at Japan, so Japan um, is a is a is a country that is faced by a range of existential threats, and their citizens know it, and there's real political accountability in the country um, around disasters and disaster risks, and it's you know it's it's sort of embedded in Japanese culture. Um, and society that you know you have proper understanding of you know what the risks are um, and you have a good understanding of whether the solutions that are, you know uh, government and private sector and people are engaging and are actually going to work or not and yet you know the 2011 earthquake and tsunami was outside of the realm of what scientists thought was possible um, the the wave height was larger than they had thought and there had been a lot of thought that had gone into it by a lot of people with a lot of credentials and it was outside the realm of what they thought so there are these things that are outside the you know this is sort of black swan type territory. yeah exactly i was going to say we call um, them black swans for but, a reason but but covid was definitely not black swan territory so some of the implications of it is sort of difficult to difficult to predict but the idea that there might be a disease x that might have these kind of characteristics um was firmly within the realm of the or what was what was predicted as being possible if not fairly likely over a decade long time horizon. So I'm going to pick up on that business about covid not being a black swan. Because I what I agree with is that the primary effects of the pandemic it's not a black swan. That can be predicted and mitigated against. But I think what you see in the secondary impact and the cascading risks that can be created and again back to the supply chain back to the famous story of uh, lipstick and I make up uh, skyrocketing and plummeting respectively because of use of masks and zoom those things and the way they interact with each other I, I don't think you can actually predict I think I think that is black swan territory yeah I, I actually totally agree with you um, but I think those primary primary impacts um, were To a large extent predictable we could have done an awful lot better at planning them and the point is risk management particularly in the context of 
complex cascading crises. Risk management has to be an iterative thing. So it's not the case that in advance of COVID, everyone needs to have a precise understanding of all the different things that might happen, including knock-on effects. No, you need to have pretty good sense of what might happen, pretty good plans in place. And then when something kicks off, then you update your plans. Then you, you, you know, and also in the context of a crisis, you don't then just think, okay, now I'm, I'm today. I'm just focused on today. You also have some people somewhere in society in the world who are also thinking about, well, how could it get worse? How could this conflict situation get worse? How could this drought get worse? What would make it worse? And have we thought through what we would have to do in those situations? And is there better planning that should be should be being done? And and who is best in class here? Who actually gets this right? Where where's the country or the organization where you think? Yeah, I really admire them. They know, they know how to do this. Is it the oil industry? Is it uh, Finland? Uh, wh- who is it? It's a good question. I mean, the I think military. In terms, in terms, <laughs> um, so good risk management. A lot of good risk management isn't around the technical work of risk management. It's around getting the governance and the accountability right. And I'm actually going to say I think one area where I think does it quite well is in the the regulated I'm going to get in trouble for this um in say the insurance industry um and a lot of people think that insurance the sort of the magic budget the, the, the silver bullet is some some sort of whizzy insurance product no the the sort of silver bullet for the insurance industry is the insurance regulator <laughs> where across the world insurance regulators have two functions firstly to make sure the outcomes are fair after the fact and secondly to make sure that communications in advance are are not misleading um and The, it's that um, it's that watchdog. Um, it's you know it's those contexts where you actually have someone who cares about the risk and people are really being held to account. Um, so Japan, I've mentioned before, is a is a country where politicians and companies are held to account, and that is what leads to good risk management. Um, um, similarly, you know, insurance industry um, is is held to account in terms of good risk management. So I think this is such a powerful idea, and I really like it, and I think it can be very impactful. But, but I think the biggest reservation I have is um, maybe the. I'll tell you a story about a meeting I once had with the World Bank. We had a meeting with with. Uh, I, I think they were probably uh, sort of your kind, sort of actuaries, <laughs> <laughs> and we were there talking about uh, some some work ACAPS was was doing uh, with the bank, and before we began. One of them said, uh, I did this beautiful analysis for social protection systems in, I can't remember the country, maybe it was Sri Lanka, maybe I can't remember, some somewhere in Asia. And, and he said, it was such a great analysis. But then, then there was a coup and nothing happened. And when we then started the meeting, I, the first thing we, we discussed was, if you want to get into fragile contexts, which is what we're talking about here, that coup, That thing that kills your perfect, beautiful analysis, that's not a bug, that's a feature. That is how it is. And so when you say the insurance industry does it well, Japan does it well, and the regulator, isn't that exactly the things that we don't have in the context where we work? And and that's probably my biggest question. So, yeah, I can see this lifting up work in a bunch of middle-income countries with, with resources and strengthening institutions, But the places where we as humanitarians work, I'm, I'm worried that the, the the framework and the preconditions are not in place and that they always will be that coup. Yeah, and I think we don't have a lot of examples that I can come to you and say, like, here's an example of something like this working, proper planning, including financial planning, working in that situation. And actually, this is one of the things that 
the Centre for Dust Protection um, wants to work on in the coming years in terms of is this kind of idea, is this kind of concept, is this applicable in those contexts? And it may be that there are some risks where there's some aspects of those risks or some implications of those um, hazard events which this doesn't work for. But maybe there, there are some things where it can. So refugee, refugee movements um, may be something that can actually be planned for much better than we do at the moment. There may be some aspects of um, you know, what the international system does and support it provides is provides which can be better planned for where pre-agreed finance can be part of the needs to be part of the mix if we want to have a better if we want to have better outcomes so you wrote a book called dull disasters i did <laughs> with stefan Durkin, i should say so if we are successful how dull can we get can we can we can we take care of 90% of the suffering can we can we substitute 90% of the payment in lives as you have put it a couple of times with payment in money to smarter financial uh, is it 50% reduction what what are we talking about so there's some numbers floating around there for that i think the start network i can't remember the exact number but something like 60% of i think the 60% of humanitarian crises are are predictable to the extent that they can be planned and have prearranged finance um, but i think Um, it comes back to, you know, we should be constantly trying to push the boundaries on what we're able to predict might be a possibility and plan for it. Um, so it's not just around planning better for things we already can under risks we can understand. It's also uncovering those other risks that we don't yet understand, but may have a potentially big impact. Um, and and then getting to understand them to the extent that we, we can then put them in that bucket. It's about shifting those unknown risks into the modelable bucket and planning for them. And in terms of how far we can make this, I mean, I, I started out my professional life in UK pensions. I think we can make it pretty dull. Daniel Clark, uh, all the best of luck uh, making the world a bit duller. I think we would all be relieved if, if that was possible. Uh, it's a fascinating idea that you're working on with the, the Center for Disaster Protection. And and I really look forward to seeing how, how that will develop in, in the coming years. And, and thank you for coming on True Humanitarian. Thank you so much. It's about the rights and the freedom to be For people to choose their path in life and dream Souls of men beyond what you see Stages are different for each who will lead Cycles of outsiders that get fat checks Fly in, fly out of places with slums and jets Ask better questions, pick apart, educate And no one is safe, we're here to build and debate We are, we are searching for more Open up your mind beyond rich or poor For the truth You've been warned Humanitarian <laughs>